Hello, I'm Samia Aryan. I'm a tech philosopher, author, filmmaker, and the founder of Impeak. My guest on today's podcast is Lane Rettig, a former Ethereum core developer who now works as a developer for Space Mash. I have previously had Tim Bako on my podcast, who runs the core protocol meetings for Ethereum. So I wanted to have a perspective of someone who has now left Ethereum too. As someone who is heavily invested in the Web3 and NFT space and the Ethereum ecosystem, I'm always interested in hearing other viewpoints as well, to make sure that I'm not living in an echo chamber of my own making. I share these conversations with you so that you can listen and decide for yourself too. I listened to your podcast interview um, on what Bitcoin did with Peter McCormick. And I actually went back and listened to it a little bit more today um, to remind myself of some of the points that you mentioned. So what I wanted to talk to you about today mostly is about uh, the merge and uh, and Ethereum mainly um, because you had some concerns and, and there were some uh, some of the things that you mentioned that seven months later, uh, where where you are, what's your thoughts, you know? And I remember that uh, Peter said that he was going to uh, have you back after six months or so. And I was like, yeah, yeah. this is a good opportunity for me to, um, you know, to talk to you. Let's give, give everybody a little bit of a background. So you started out as being very much in uh, the Ethereum camp and like very interested in what they were doing. And then uh, you started to kind of fall away from that a little bit and and went back to your Bitcoin roots, right? Um, The reason why I'm interested in it, uh, apart from the fact that I'm building a um, Web3 education platform, uh, is that personally, actually, most of my digital assets are in the form of NFTs and they are Mm Ethereum-based NFTs. Um, and uh, with what what I'm building as well, um, you know, we are going to be releasing our own NFT. So the destiny of Ethereum is very important to my business, you know. So as they would say in the in the space, you know, that I have a sure. lot of ETH, ETH bags, you know, like. Uh, so yeah, so I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on uh, first of all, you know, tell us a little bit about your background, but also then where are you now seven months later since you last had that conversation with Peter McCormick? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for um, recapping the context. That's helpful for me as well, because seven months is a long time in crypto months. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I guess just starting with the absolute basics. So I'm a software developer. I've been writing code my whole life. I've done that in a number of different industries over the years. I guess I'm at a point in my life and my career now where, you know, my, my CV is probably longer than one page. And so there's kind of a few sections. Um, so I started my career in a traditional finance company, right? So we now have a term for this TradFi as opposed to DeFi. So I was at a quantitative hedge fund for about six years. Um, after that, I went back to school. So I was uh, studying business and international studies in grad school. I changed gears completely and I became an entrepreneur and had a healthcare technology startup for a while. So again, radically different industry moving from um, from traditional finance to healthcare, um, did that for about three or four years. And it was actually, so now we're getting to 2016 into 2017. So I was taking a little bit of time off after I stopped working on the healthcare startup and I accidentally discovered 
crypto and blockchain. I think that they had been in the back of my mind. I'd been aware of both Bitcoin and Ethereum, but of course, because I'd been in this heads down focused founder mode for, for years, I didn't really uh, have the mental space to, to really sit down and understand them. Um, so that finally happened in late 2016, early 2017. Uh, the very first thing I did was start going to Bitcoin meetups and kind of just join the Bitcoin community to the extent that such a thing exists. Um, and, and then, yes, I very rapidly, as you mentioned, kind of went down the Ethereum rabbit hole. I joined the Ethereum Foundation in late 2017. I worked there as a core developer for about two years, uh, both on the tech side as well as on kind of the social and governance side. Um, you would have heard me speak about some of the, both of those, I guess, but but the kind of governance stuff with Peter on his podcast. Um, and then in 2019, I changed gears again and I joined a fledgling project called Space Mesh. And so I've been doing that for the past three years. So I am a Bitcoiner first and foremost. I still consider myself an Ethereum and I'm active in that ecosystem. I run Ethereum 2 Validator and I follow the project closely. I uh, still attend a lot of Ethereum events, et cetera. Um, but my day job today is R&D for uh, a project that hasn't launched yet. We're, we're launching Space Mesh soon. Um, so, so yeah, sorry, that's just framing. Um, and then I think you were asking how my thoughts about Ethereum have evolved over the past few months. That's right. Uh, but maybe let's first tell people where you were last time uh, when I heard you, or, or maybe I can try and say it and you can tell me whether I understood it correctly. And that was that you essentially decided that you were not very happy with Ethereum going towards the proof of stake uh, consensus mechanism. Uh, and you thought that this could be a, um, a problem for uh, Ethereum down the line. Do you still believe that, uh, considering how close we are to the merge? Um, and, and let's recap some of your, your concerns that you had about that. Yeah, great question. So I think in a nutshell, I, um, so there's sort of two ways to look at this. So, so the first part is why I left Ethereum in 2019. Uh, sorry, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, 2019. Yeah. Um, and that, I, I would say that the roadmap, including kind of the proof of stake transition was part of that, but it was actually a small part of it. I think the the much larger frustrations I had with the project that time involved the governance at that time, right? So this was years before that transition um, was going to happen, which again, like some of those frustrations still exist. They're not entirely unrelated to proof of stake. Um, although again, I think that these are, there's a little bit of overlap, but they're kind of two distinct sets of, of concerns. Uh, some of those concerns still exist. Some of them I think may have changed a bit in, in that time. It's obviously been three years. Um, and then apart from that, the proof of stake transition Here's the way I would put it. I would say I have a number of objections to proof of stake in the abstract, right? And this is what I went into depth with Peter uh, about on the interview I did with him a few months ago on this topic. I think it was called why proof of stake is flawed, something like that. Um, having said that, in the specific case of the Ethereum upgrade, so this is this is unique and distinct from other proof of stake implementations in a few ways. I'll just highlight one now and then we can we can dig into it or 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 look at the other aspects. Um, the, the most obvious aspect is that when a network launches in the beginning with proof of stake, right? In other words, it's the only consensus mechanism the project has had. And this is the case with projects like Cosmos and Near and Solana and many, many other projects that that launch with proof of stake, right? They have this issue of initial token distribution. In other words, proof of stake cannot be used to do token distribution in any sort of credibly neutral 
or quote unquote, I try to avoid the word fair, but you know, most people would use the word fair kind of way. We, we, we use the term credibly neutral and that's sort of a game theoretic term. In other words, with, with, a, with a proof of stake launch, what you end up having is you end up with a very small number of people who are insiders, investors, et cetera, who hold those tokens on day one, run the validators, can maintain their stake, et cetera, right? Proof of work, by contrast, is is credibly neutral in the in the sense that it's it's permissionless, right? So anyone anywhere can spin up a node. They don't need to have tokens ahead of time. They don't need to have been part of the pre mine or an early investor. And so Ethereum now has uh, you know seven years of proof of work history. And so over those seven years, those coins have been generated and distributed to a, a very uh, large set of actors. And and this is unique, right? This is very different. No no network has done this transition before. And so actually. Ethereum is in a better place than a network that just launched with proof of stake. Okay, that's that's super interesting. That's really really interesting because you're uh, the way that you're putting it. So so Ethereum has got the most chance of any other chain to succeed in this in this uh, space, right? Yeah, let me be very clear. I I think the merge will happen soon. I think it will succeed. I think Ethereum will be fine. So I think your NFTs will be okay, and hopefully mine will too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just yeah. think there are some nuances with respect to things like governance and fairness and this credible neutrality topic. And those are the kinds of things Peter and I were talking about. So none of this means Ethereum is going to die, right? It just means that I think it's, it's good to be aware of these nuances. So I call myself a tech philosopher. You know, I look at uh, the philosophy of technology. So let's get into... Uh, on a philosophical level, what are some of the issues that you see with the, um, you know, with the proof of stake um, mechanism? And then let's put that aside and then look at, you know, from a technical point of view, why is this, you know, this merge happening and why is Ethereum making this change? Because I remember when you spoke with Peter, you you said very clearly that um, one of the reasons why proof of work would struggle with the uh, the kind of volume that is required of a chain to be able to maintain all of the different things that we want to be able to do with DeFi and NFTs and DAOs, like Bitcoin just can't do that, right? Um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding that that those things just can't be built on on Bitcoin. There's there's that issue, and then there's the fact that there is this community in Ethereum, in a way, mm -hmm. you know, especially in the NFT space. There is a very, very strong sense of community in a way that is not in Bitcoin, you know. And um, I actually I sold all of my Bitcoin to buy ETH so that I could buy these NFTs because I wanted to get into various, um, you know, uh, NFT communities. One, just one of my NFT community, uh, one of my NFTs. Um, my proof pass, I bought it for $140,000, you know, so uh, uh, there's a reason why I did that because I wanted to be part of that community and, and I wanted access, you know, I wanted that um, the things that I'm learning there are so, so helpful to me. You don't, I don't believe we have that in Bitcoin, you know, like it's, it's not quite the same way. So, so there's that adoption side of things to think about as well. So, so let's uh, take a step back. So start with, on a philosophical level, what's your problem with the governance? Let's understand that properly. Um, and then look at on a technical. So then, then we can look at like what, what's the trade-off in terms of the, uh, the, the kind of ideal governance and the ideal technical. 
All right, this is ambitious roadmap. Let's 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 dig in. Uh, I love that, that you use the term. Um, what was the term? Technical philosopher? Did I get that right? Tech philosopher, philosopher yeah. of technology. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. I might borrow that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I think really, I think that that the governance of anything as complex as Bitcoin or Ethereum is 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 so complicated and so nuanced that you can't hope to understand it if you're not comfortable approaching it philosophically. And, and I think that's actually tied to some of my issues with governance. So let me try to um, explain those briefly. If I had to describe the governance of Ethereum historically in a very, in a single word, basically the word I would use is naive, right? Um, it was historically governed by a very small number of people, like on the order of 10 to 20 people who historically knew each other, I mean, which makes sense. I guess most projects start this way. You know, these are people who um, were, were in the room together in the early, early days, you know, circa 2014, 2015, 2016. Um, the project also wasn't as complicated back then. Um, and the decision was made, or maybe no decision was made, right, that no sort of formal structured governance system would be put in place, right? It would just be kind of ad hoc, um, and th this is this is tempting and attractive and naive, and you see this very often with um, with with tech founders and tech teams, probably in other spaces as well, right? And and I think that it it stems from a frustration with existing governance structures, whether they be corporate governance structures or kind of you know nation state type governance systems. Um, you know, there's obviously a libertarian ethos that's very common in the crypto space and, and, a, and a great deal of frustration with existing world government, governments and governance. So specific governments as well as just governance more generally. And so there's this naive, I'm going to keep, you're going to keep hearing me use this word naive, this naive desire to build something that is apart from or outside of or uh, above governance. Right. And it's it's utopian in a sense. It's like, oh, if you put a bunch of people in a room together, you know, it's actually it's actually almost um, anarchistic in a way, uh, anarchist rather in a way. You know, you, you don't have any formalized governance and, and you kind of let people, you know, act in a high trust fashion and, and be good to one another and figure it out. But, the, you know, the problem with this is that there's always bad actors who exploit these situations. Um, it doesn't scale. And in particular, what I saw in Ethereum very acutely was this phenomenon called the tyranny of structurelessness, TOS. Right? So tyranny of structurelessness is a concept that I wasn't familiar with when I first joined the Ethereum ecosystem. In fact, it um, was articulated in the 70s by a feminist um, activist named Joe Friedman. I, I, I hope I got that name right. Um, and it's a short essay, and I recommend all your your audience read it, right? Tyranny of structurelessness. If you Google it, it'll be the first hit. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. It's something that emerged again from a feminism movement in the seventies. And it speaks very powerfully to the human condition and to the ways in which when you put people in a room together, metaphorically or physically, without structures, without elected leaders, without any kind of governance system, inevitably a group of elites emerges and begins to capture the, uh, the governance socially. Um, in the sense that some small number of people kind of rise to the top and, and gain more influence. And anyway, long story short, this is kind of what I witnessed in Ethereum. And it was very frustrating because Ethereum aspires to be this global network that will be around for a long time. And that, you know, NFTs and many, many, many other types of applications can be built on and billions of humans can use. And I feel very strongly that that cannot be done in a, in a fashion where this tyranny of structurelessness phenomenon um, is so acute. So I'll pause there for a second because that's kind of a lot, but that was the the core of my frustrations at that time. Okay, very interesting. 
you could say that pretty much every leader in history, whatever they've tried to do, has been idealistic. And uh, I think there is a very thin line between idealistic and naivety. I think, you know, anytime you try to solve a problem, in many ways, it is naive, uh, you know, because you, you need a degree of naivete to um, have the courage to try and change the status quo. You know, uh, I have so many, so many uh, examples of my own naivete in life when I think about it. I remember, for example, when I uh, uh, I was growing up in Iran, um, you know, I was reading books by, um, you know, people like uh, Professor Brian Greene. Um, you know, I was obsessed with everything to do with space and time and all that stuff. And uh, and I remember at what one point I wrote him a letter and I sent it to, you know, I, I um, Googled and, and uh, you know, found an address for the university that he was in. And I wrote him a letter and you could say that that was very naive, right? Like Like he would probably never either receive it, not look at it. You know, in many ways it was completely naive, right? But actually now I'm, uh, I have my own podcast and he's actually on the list of people that we are inviting, you know, to, to the podcast. So I will get to talk to him, you know, many years later. So, so the point what I'm trying to make here is that every form of improvement in human history often starts with a form of naivete. It starts with some kind of, you know, oversimplification of a problem. I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing. You know, like you could say that with Bitcoin even. You know, that's why um, in the beginning nobody took it seriously and and many people were... uh, I mean, look, somebody paid uh, 10,000 Bitcoins for, uh, you know, for For pizza, pizza. right? Yeah. Um, And yeah, so you could... I think that you definitely... Every time you're designing a new system, you need that. There There needs to be some kind of naive naivete that part of it i can uh you know i can understand the other thing is that i don't think we will ever be and i and i don't think uh, we definitely aren't yet in a place where the structure of society can be completely flat you know i consider myself as a bit of an anarchist i like i don't know if you know michael malice i like people like michael i do (laughs) i I really like him, you know, like I consider myself an anarchist. I'm a Nietzschean, you know, like it's um, I like that kind of the idea of a flat society. But at the same time, I'm a leader at heart. So uh, I get I think, you know, I've, I, I've always been the kind of person that would like take initiative and bring people together and do things. So in a society, you're always going to have these types of different characteristics and uh, and there will be people that will rise to the top and they will, you know, um, and be there to to bring people together. So I don't necessarily think that with uh, things like with Ethereum or with um, you know decentralization, it's not about completely getting rid of leadership. It's about evolving leadership in a way that it becomes more of a dialogue. That uh, you know that it's a it's an improvement over the kind of current uh, form of democracy that we have. So, uh, so what what's your reaction to that? What 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 are your thoughts on um, your initial just reaction to uh, to what I just said? Uh, do you still think that the fact that there's some form of governance in in Ethereum that that's still a problem? 
Yeah. So first of all, thank you for sharing that story. That's a really lovely, inspirational story. So I, yeah, I encourage everyone to do silly, ambitious, um, naive things once in a while, because sometimes they pay off. So that's a, again, it's a great story. I, I broadly agree with what you're saying, right? I, I, I think you have a very valid point that um, the most exciting projects and initiatives have a degree of naivete in them in the sense that you could argue it's naive or hubristic to think that you, one could kind of challenge the status quo in any big way. And, and that is kind of where change comes from, right? There's some some quote, something about how, uh, you know, reasonable people play by the rules, unreasonable people play by their own rules. Therefore, all meaningful social progress is caused, you know, is, is initiated by unreasonable people. So I, I think that that's accurate. Um, I, I think the lens that I'm kind of approaching this from is an institutional lens, right? So I, I find this lens to be particularly useful. It's something I, I was first introduced to in business school um, and have since, you know, learned more about through some folks who are much smarter than I am through governance communities like Medigov. Um, there's a really fantastic community, medigov.org, um, that does like weekly seminars and has some really brilliant uh, thinkers in it. So another resource I recommend people check out. And Radical Exchange is another one you might have heard of uh, Glenn Weil and Radical Markets book and Radical Exchange. So these are some of the folks that I've been kind of like uh, picking up IQ points from over the past few years. And, and so they talk a lot about this institutional lens as well, right? I think, you know, as these projects like Bitcoin and like Ethereum continue to scale and the market caps continue to grow and the user base grows, et cetera, et cetera, they become more um, established institutions, then I think it becomes more and more important that we think very carefully about how they're governed and uh, who has a role in governance and how accessible that governance is to people around the world. Now, Bitcoin, of course, is a very different case because Bitcoin governance is complex and um, kind of intentionally opaque. And many people will say Bitcoin doesn't really have governance. It's a little bit more anarchist in that way. So I guess Michael would like it. Um, Ethereum is a little bit more structured uh, and, and I think one of the ways in which it has improved is uh, as we approach this Ethereum to merge, the, the number of stakeholders has grown. There's more um, software projects that are very active in this in, in the ETH2 roadmap um, than there were in, in the olden days, you know, when I was involved in the project. So there are more entry points. Um, but, you know, uh, I would want to be part of a society and I want to build a society that allows upward mobility, right? So just to give you one very concrete example. And I think that in a, in a very chaotic, um, anarchistic kind of uh, ecosystem that is really dominated by something like tyranny of structurelessness, that may be close to unachievable. And that, that, those are my concerns, I think, is, is, is ensuring kind of accessibility and, and access to as many humans as possible. But do you think that Bitcoin is the solution then? Or do you think that neither of them are the solution? Solution to, to what? Let's, to let's state our allowing, problem you know, <laughs> To allowing this at uh, the type of society that you are suggesting. I, I think they're part of the solution, right? And I think so because they offer a very different institutional model. Um, you know, I, I think the, the, the best example of this is the DAO, right? And I'm speaking now about DAOs in a more um, abstract sense. So not necessarily about any particular DAO. I mean, I think we could refer to Bitcoin and Ethereum themselves as DAOs and Bitcoin is the first DAO. Um, but, you know, specifically because 
other types of institutions are more complex and require a lot more activation energy. So companies, you know, are probably the easiest, right? And in some places like, like the United States, it's not that hard to set up a company. Um, obviously, international institutions are significantly more complicated to, to establish. Um, but, you know, they're not internet native. Even the, the simplest LLC, you know, which is kind of the, the most lightweight company you can have in, 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 in the United States and in many places, right? Even that is, is not internet native and it's still kind of uh, needs to be tied to a particular jurisdiction, a particular body of law, a particular currency. There's a lot of baggage associated with it. Um, whereas you, you know, a DAO is an internet native institution. It's a thing that that any number of people anywhere in the world can spin up in a matter of minutes using. Um, I mean, again, Bitcoin. It's a little bit hard to kind of do some of this stuff. It's theoretically possible. It's practically very difficult. Um, but but certainly tools on Ethereum and many other smart contract platforms make this very easy. Um, and, and so in this respect, yes, I think that they they allow a new type of institution that is accessible to orders of magnitude more people who may be in parts of the world where they, for whatever reason, um, are not likely to become an employee of a US-based, you know, Delaware C corporation or something, but they're much more likely to join a DAO. Yeah. So the way that um, I see it, I think that we need both. To me, it makes sense that you need both. Um, I don't know why the crypto community can't come to an agreement with, uh, you know, on, on this issue. I'm definitely buying some more Bitcoin once, uh, you know, I'm waiting for this, for the dip, uh, you know, to go a little bit. Oh, we haven't, uh, so, so this recent dip, we, we have a bigger dip coming. Is that your, your yeah, forecast? I so. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think this is just, we are having a relief rally, you know, so I, I definitely <laughs> think that there's going to be a dip. So I'm waiting for that dip. Uh, the way I see it, I think, you know, there's there's merits to both. both, And I think they kind of keep each other, uh, what do you call it in uh, English? You say at check or they, uh, in check? Yeah, keep, keep each other in check or you could just say keep each other honest. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, I like the fact that we have both. And uh, yeah. I know that the two communities don't quite get along sometimes, um, which is kind of ironic because for most investors, uh, you know, or retail investors, especially, you ask them, you know, what are you buying? They say Bitcoin and Ethereum or Bitcoin, yeah. and right? Right. So so most people actually, uh, you know, invest in both. But the hardcore, uh, you know, people from both communities don't seem to get along. Is there something that can be done to... Uh, the, the the way I see it is like the crypto community is so small, we don't have the luxury of half of us not being there. You see what I mean? Like, right. like we actually need each other, and I wish um, people would would see that. You know, like uh, some of the podcast guests that um, I'm I'm going to be having on my podcast. You know, sometimes when I tell them. You know that this these are the conversations you know and some of them so the bitcoin maxis for example jimmy song i'll just say it you know and i'm going to talk to him about it when he comes on podcast he says that he said that i will come on the podcast but i want to talk about bitcoin i don't want to talk about crypto and web3 and and i said um okay you know like just come on and and we will uh, figure it out but the first question i'm going to ask him when he comes i'm going to ask him actually why do you not want to talk about you know these other things and i've had other um bitcoin strong advocates i'm trying not to use the word maximalist because i know that uh you know peter doesn't like that but you know uh, strong advocates of uh, of bitcoin many of them um, sometimes it really baffles me that they say they don't see uh, the other applications of blockchain technology as being even valid or, or interesting. Like, for example, I had 
uh, Stefan Levera on my podcast, and he said uh, very clearly, he said that um, I don't think blockchain technology is in itself interesting. Bitcoin is the innovation. And I just, uh, I just can't see how that, um, that comes about, you know, like it's, it's like a contradiction in terms in, in many ways, you know, because actually, personally, I got into blockchain technology not through Bitcoin. For many people, they got into uh, blockchain because they discovered Bitcoin and the number go up technology. For me, that was not what got me into it. I was doing a lot of research on AI, uh, you know, through all this philosophy, kind of uh, philosophy of technology st- stuff that I study. And as I was reading a lot about AI, um, in one of the books I was reading, I come across this term called blockchain. And I'm like, what is blockchain? So then I started reading about blockchain technology. And actually, uh, when I fully understood blockchain, at that point, I still didn't know anything about Bitcoin per se. You know, I uh, read books about the blockchain technology. And, I, and the first thing that made came to my mind was that, oh, this is going to disrupt Amazon. This is going to disrupt Google. This is why I'm interested in it, because it's going to make it possible to, um, you know, uh, not have that intermediary. So, and governments, of course, and banks, you know, all that stuff. Clearly, blockchain technology in itself is fascinating. It's so interesting. There's so many things that can be done with it. But as you know, and I know, and many people um, who are listening to this uh, will have hopefully uh, watched my video about the block uh, blockchain trilemma. Uh, I have one on, on YouTube. Um, that the b- biggest problem that we have with blockchain technology is the scalability. And uh, and that's the problem that it, it, Ethereum is trying to solve in a way that I don't think Bitcoin has even tried to, you know, the Bitcoin community, I don't think they've even tried to solve that problem. Because um, Ethereum is... You know, there's something that that clicks for you when you get into things like NFTs, for example. You know, then you see the need for scalability. Sure. And I don't think Bitcoin community understands that because they're not into those things. They're not in those communities. They're not in those discords. They don't see the need. They don't understand fully why we are trying to do this. So as somebody who has been in both camps, um, what are your thoughts on this issue of the scalability and and the the fact that uh, the Bitcoin community doesn't seem to really see this. Let me speak really, really briefly to the first part of your 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 question, which is about um, the two camps not seeing eye to eye. Um, I think this actually has very little to do with blockchain or even technology. I think this is just human nature. You know, I think the human brain is really, really good at filtering things. I think it's the only way we get anything done in our lives. We have billions and billions of bits of information kind of flying at us through our five senses, you know, every second. And the only way that we are able to have conversations or focus on a task or something really is, is the brain is really good at filtering things out. And so it has many heuristics, right? And, and I think that, that, that one of them is kind of ignoring nuance and picking a narrative in a camp right? And kind of sticking to it. And you see this in so many aspects of life. You know, you see this in the debate about how to respond to the Russia-Ukraine situation here in the United States, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, this abortion topic has become very big. We have this culture war, we have these camps. These are all 
um, just simplification kind of tactics. And I think that Bitcoin Ethereum is, it's just a fundamental divide. It's like Republicans and Democrats or take your pick, you know, so it's, it's going to be around for a while and it's, you know, maybe there's a healthy tension there. And, and, and uh, I almost feel that each side would, wouldn't exist if the other side didn't exist. You know, some things can only exist in, in this kind of dialectic, but actually this leads directly into your question about the scaling thing. Really what it boils down to is, is a, is a, is a philosophical difference, right? Bitcoiners are extraordinarily cautious and conservative with respect to protocol changes. And I think that's good, right? Because um, I think that there should exist a blockchain that is extremely conservative and uh, maximizes security at the cost of, of usability and scalability. And, you know, of course, you refer to the trilemma, right? So, so everything is a trade-off. There's a reason that Bitcoin is the store of value. And I, I still, to this day, feel more comfortable storing value in Bitcoin than I do in Ethereum. Although I do think Ethereum is moving in the direction of being a good store of value as well. Um, and Ethereum optimizes philosophically and technologically for other things, right? It, it early on um, really maximized innovation, right? So the trade-off here would be conservatism on the one hand or security, I guess, on the one hand versus innovation. Um, but as it's matured, it's becoming more and more conservative and the protocol it hasn't ossified yet to the extent that Bitcoin has. In other words, there's still some pretty big things that are changing, um, but it's moving that direction. And, and Vitalik has said his his goal is that once, you know, the, the, these three or four next milestones are reached, that the Ethereum protocol will stop evolving and, and kind of all the additional innovation will be pushed out to, to, to layer two, layer three, to higher layers. I think with respect to scaling specifically, I actually would push back a little bit. And I think that that the Ethereum roadmap has evolved. I think that there's still a common misperception about this. You know, early on, the vision was that the Ethereum roadmap would have this sort of serenity phase that we're moving into. It goes by a few names. It used to be called Serenity, Ethereum 2. Now it's now it's the merge, right? So we're not supposed to use the Ethereum 2 phrase anymore. Um, originally, it included not only proof of stake, but also sharding. Uh, and the, the idea was that there would be dozens or perhaps hundreds of shards, and, and this would increase the capacity. Um, that's not happening anytime soon, right? And so actually this next phase is not really about scaling. It's really about other things, primarily the proof of stake transition. And the main reason for this is that scaling has been pushed out to layer two via solutions like rollups. Um, and interestingly, this is also possible on Ethereum, you know, via things like Lightning. Oh, you meant that it's also possible on Bitcoin via things like I'm Sorry, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so basically doing scaling at layer two, exactly. Uh, from somebody who is more of an insider to the technical side of what's happening there. Um, I'm sure you know this better than me, but from an outsider perspective, when I look at it, I don't see the kind of enthusiasm that I see in Ethereum community. Like for example, I interviewed Carl uh, uh, Flourish from Optimism. Uh, mm -hmm. And and like the when I look at and I, and you know there uh, the the people from Polygon I haven't interviewed them yet but um you know when I look at the interviews that they are doing out there it just seems like Arbitrum Polygon you know there's like so many things uh, right. so many people are working so many more people are working on layer two solutions for Ethereum than in Bitcoin and they seem right. to be moving faster they seem to be you know, younger, you know, more enthusiastic, you know, like really um, innovative. Whereas when I look at something like Bitcoin and, and Lightning, I don't, I don't yet know. It's like, maybe it's ignorant of me, but I don't know who is running, you know, who is like spearheading Lightning. It's not clear. I don't know how to explain. It. It's kind of like with the Ethereum community, 
I feel a sense of connection, you know, whether it's true, uh, you know, you, you think about how many things has come out of the Ethereum community. There's been DAOs, there's been DeFi, there's been, you know, NFTs. Now there's this soulbound tokens, you know, like they're constantly evolving, constantly new solutions. And these solutions are things at the metaverse, you know, like all of these things that are, you know, that are that seem like they're a lot more relevant to our time. And, and I believe that increasingly we are going to be living in the metaverse. You know, look at what happened with the pandemic, you know, us doing this thing on, on Zoom. I can see Bitcoin as like the store of value that is like really nice backup. You know, it's like I think of it as like my backup plan is like my store of value. But in terms of relevance to the kind of life that we are going to be living, I don't see that, um, you know, happening quite the same way in the Bitcoin community. Whereas with, with uh, Ethereum, I can see that. And the reason why I'm a lot more bullish on Ethereum than, say, for example, Solana, Avalanche and, and all the other chains is exactly what you said, that, that there's this unique position that Ethereum is in, which makes me think I feel a lot more confident keeping my money in ETH than in, say, one, some of the other chains, Solano, etc. So with all of these things said, do you still feel strongly about um, your, maybe your opposing um, views on Ethereum or, or do you feel like, do you see the value in it? Um, and, and do you think that it's a good thing to have it and, and, and where we are going with it? Yeah, yeah, great question. I want to just agree with what you were saying about the relevance of, of, of Ethereum and the excitement. And, and you really only need to go to really one Ethereum meetup and one Bitcoin meetup or conference or something to get a sense of what you're talking about. You see immediately the energy in the room. I was at one of these large ETH global hackathons here a few weeks ago, and it was remarkable. I mean, this is into a bear market. People came from all over the world, uh, very young people, very diverse. I mean, extraordinarily diverse. I was meeting teams from dozens of countries, you know, people who looked different and sounded different and lots of different genders and everything. You don't get that in Bitcoin meetups and also many first timers as well. So just a lot of people kind of like still arriving new in this ecosystem and excited about it. I think it's accurate. And if you look at criticism from folks like Nick Carter, who have been in the space a few years, who are very reasonable people who are very introspective and think about this stuff a lot, you know, he's he's criticized Bitcoin along these lines as well. Um, that it's it's kind of failing to excite, you know, new generations of hackers, so to speak. And over the long term, this is going to be difficult for Bitcoin. And I think it's something that a lot of the our, our Bitcoin maximalist friends um have not really come to terms with. Again, I'm just I'm just repeating what folks like Nick have said. And, and this has been discussed on Peter's podcast as well. Um, I don't know what this means for Bitcoin. You know, I, I, again, going back to what I said earlier, I think it's okay that Bitcoin be conservative and not change a whole lot. But, you know, uh, over the really long term, if, if, if Ethereum and other projects continue to just attract um, the vast majority, the lion's share of young, excited, talented people, venture capital, et cetera, one can't help but wonder if, you know, ultimately that sort of brain drain phenomenon is is going to uh, begin to to eat value from Bitcoin. I think it probably already has. I mean, I think, you know, um, yeah, I think that's fairly evident. Uh, so, so circling back to your question, you know, I think both can be true, right? So I think that my um, kind of criticism of, of Ethereum stands, right? I think that, that my, my criticism of proof of stake 
I think there's some very valid kind of points there and there's some risks. And, and, and again, if we have a couple extra minutes, we can talk about some of them, but, but they were also covered pretty thoroughly on, on the conversation with Peter. And I've also blogged about this. I think Ethereum could do more to make its governance kind of more explicit and more inclusive. And in particular, we touched a little bit upon this earlier, like making room for people like philosophers, right? So one of my big complaints about Ethereum's governance was that it's this de facto technocracy where you have this very small unelected group of, again, on the order of 10, and maybe today it's on the order of 100, you know, effectively Western male coders, right? I, I mean, I'm a Western man. I have no issue with that per se, but but again, to, to the extent that Ethereum kind of purports to be a network for the entire world, I think it's important that, that, that there are more voices in its governance. And in particular, people who are not just hackers and coders, but also philosophers, uh, people, you know, an experience with experience in political philosophy, conflict resolution, history, take your pick, right? There's many perspectives that I think matter here. You know, it's not just an open source project anymore. You know, it, it is in a sense, I mean, it's a DAO for sure. And it is, it is a kind of, I don't know what the right word for this is. It, it's sort of a, a network state to borrow Balaji's terminology, right? So it's kind of a community that people, uh, have an affiliation to, and it's part of their identity. You know, there's this very strong Ethereum identity and you see this at events and things. So again, I think to the extent that, that Ethereum wants to continue to grow that and remain relevant and, and have be a big tent, I, I just think it's very, very important that, that, that steps be taken to uh, make room for, for many voices in governance, right? So that's one half of my brain. The other half of my brain, as I said, both can be true, is that Ethereum remains a very exciting project. I agree with you. I think it's the most exciting project out there. I'm, I'm very bullish on the future of Ethereum, both technologically and socially at this moment. And I have seen some progress along the lines addressing some of my criticism about the um, the governance issues. So yeah, I, I, I like it a lot and I and I wish it... This is how love works, right? You can love a person or a thing or an institution and because you love it so deeply, you, you're frustrated that it's not better than it is. Yeah, definitely. No, I agree with you. I, look, it's, um, it's a little bit like that um, saying, uh, what was it, that... Um, Churchill, I think, said that uh, all systems are terrible. Um, democracy is like the something like that. I've probably butchered it, but you know what I mean. Like I think everybody has heard that. Um, you can correct me if you if you uh, know the exact quote, but basically that democracy, yes, it's not great, but it's the best that we have, right? So uh, in a similar way, I I hear your concerns about uh, governance. I, I studied political philosophy. You know, that's why, um, you know, that's why I'm interested in all of these stuff. And and um, I hear everything that you're saying. But at the very least, um, maybe at the governance level, uh, that um, uh, perspective difference is, is uh, lacking. But when you come into the level of NFTs and culture, mm -hmm. then there is, you know, there is a lot more room for, um, you know, for exploring uh, and like having a lot more diversity whereas in bitcoin you don't even have that because you um you know it's like uh, there's this immaculate start and then you know nobody knows you know like from there on it's just like in a on a cultural level when you think of you know when you go to a bitcoin conference i didn't go to bitcoin miami but a lot of my friends went and they were the the things that the vibes that they were uh, uh describing to me was like basically like 
a bit of a gent gentleman's club, you know, in, in many yes. ways. Whereas um, you would never see that in, in Ethereum and it, it, it's not acceptable, that type of thing. Anyway, so, okay, so we are, we're coming to the end of this conversation. I, I really appreciate your input. There's, uh, and I will put um, in the show notes, I will put a link to your interview with Peter because we haven't gone into a lot of the technical stuff here today because that will open a whole new conversation. I wanted to have a, a com conversation with you that would be complementary to what Peter had so that people can then listen uh, to both. Uh, I have a lot of respect for Peter, uh, but uh, I also disagree with him on, on a lot of accounts. Uh, I'm actually stealing a lot of his guests. <laughs> So, you know, so that I can have a, a slightly different conversation with them. I had Travis Kling on and, and we had such a great conversation about the fact that we potentially live in the uh, simulation, <laughs> you know. and That's a fun one. That's a fun one. Yeah, that's a fun yeah. topic. And, and um, I'm excited to hear that you're interviewing some of the same folks, but in a very different context. I, I've certainly, I think this conversation has been very complimentary yeah. uh, to Peter's. Yeah, definitely. And you should definitely listen to my conversation with uh, Travis because uh, the, especially the, the second part of it, we went into rabbit hole of do we live in a simulation and we both think that we live in a simulation. <laughs> you know, so, well, so. I mean, yeah, some very, very smart people say it's more, it's, it's at least, I think, 50-50, right? It's more likely than not. And there's the whole Nick Bostrom argument about it. So this is a, yeah, it's a fun. Yeah, and if you have an AI background, you will have thought about this a lot. Yeah, there, so well, actually, I, I applied to do a PhD with Nick Bostrom, but he wasn't taking on new students. <laughs> so, so, yeah. It's that fun. was very naive of you. <laughs> <laughs> it was very naive of me, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so... I think I have covered everything. Um, so all in all, you think that the merge is going to be okay. My bags are going to be okay. <laughs> that everything is going to be fine. You think that the merge is going to happen this year. And, and from a technical point of view, that uh, you think it's going to be okay. Yeah. I mean, look, I have no inside information whatsoever. Uh, not that there is any inside information per se. I mean, this is all you know happening in the open. It's an open source project. In fact, I was just... I was actually just catching up a little bit today, you know, reading the status of some of the, the quote unquote shadow merges. So there've actually been quite a few of them. A number of the test nets have been merged and there's one more coming up uh, next month, I think in about two weeks or something, the uh, the Gurley test net is gonna be um, is gonna be rolled over to proof of stake as well and attached to one of the uh, existing proof of stake beacon chain test nets, which I think was called Prodder. So, um, I think, yeah, I think what people need to know is that this is not, I mean, it is a technically complicated project, but it's, it's not, uh, a one and done, right. It's something that, uh, has been done again and again and again. And, and, you know, of course, each time one of these like testnet merges is, is, is carried out, you know, bugs are discovered. And, and the most recent one, there were some kind of small issues that happened. Um, I was studying the docs today because I want to, I'm excited about it and I want to participate in this final testnet merge as a way of preparing for the mainnet one. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, all the indicators I've seen, the light is green and, you know, we're, we're coming up, we're now like weeks, uh, months, if not weeks away from, from this happening. And, um, you know, of course, like unknown unknowns can, can still happen, but, um, the roadmap is, is clear and, and progress is being made. And this is, this is exciting because, you know, it, it was a standing joke for many years among, you know, not only like Bitcoiners, but Ethereum folks as well. Like the Ethereum roadmap will never happen. You know, the, Vitalik tweeted out his, there's a really funny slide from a presentation he did like 2014 or maybe early 2015 that showed the Ethereum roadmap. And it, it had these major milestones coming two or three months apart. 
I think this is part of like a January first update that, that he had like uh, that he had tweeted. Um, and and you know this 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 merge, which is to say this proof of stake transition, was supposed to happen like like eight months after you know this this presentation in 2015 or something. And he kind of mentioned in his retrospective how he was so naive about how uh, you know complex some of this stuff is technically. Um, but yeah, I mean here we are in 2022. It is happening. Um, you know, there's a big gathering of the Ethereum community uh, DevCon that's happening in October in Bogota, and I I think the merge is supposed to you know fingers crossed right it's supposed to happen kind of just before that, um, which like which was the case in in 2017 there was a, a big network hard fork that happened just before the um, the, uh, the DevCon event uh, in the autumn of that year and everyone was kind of celebrating so the the, the strong hope is that we can all come together and celebrate this in in October. Um, and so, yeah, anyone, any of your listeners who are excited to, to be a part of that, I'd, I'd urge them to, to watch the merge closely. There'll be a lot of, um, you know, Zoom calls they can join with champagne and stuff um, and, and, and maybe an in-person celebration shortly after. Um, and, and just to reiterate, this is the largest network upgrade that's ever happened to a blockchain. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a very significant milestone. You can, you can hear in my voice, like, you know, again, despite all of my, my criticisms and my reservations about proof of stake, it's a significant milestone. I'm very excited about it. I think it it, it means um, a lot of good things for the Ethereum community. Awesome. Yeah. No. Definitely. I'm 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 excited about it, and uh, I hope that by saying all these things, Peter is not gonna have you, he's probably not gonna have you back on his podcast because you said all these good things about being excited about. He knows. It. <laughs> he knows. He knows. I'm 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 a shit corner. You know. He's the first to to, to call me that. <laughs> it's exciting. Look, it's always like that with with technology you know you always have to put yourself out there you have to experiment a lot of people are not going to like it it's inertia you know it's like we just we just get used to something you know like you don't like bitcoin and then once you start using bitcoin then you're like oh okay now i don't like anything else and then once you start using that you don't like the next thing right so it's always like that this is the story of technology well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me. I actually interviewed uh, Tim Baker some time ago. I'm going to have him back on uh, closer to the merge or, or just after. Fingers crossed. Let's hope that it all goes uh, goes well. I'm, I'm glad you were able to, to, to speak to Tim. You know, he's, he's a great guy. He's doing really important work. He's going to be a very, very busy guy. He's always a busy guy. He's going to be an extra busy guy these next few months. But um, he'll be able to, of course, like, share way more than, than I can about the status of that project. But yeah, thank you for having me. So me, this has been a, a, a lot of fun. Uh, I'm very, very excited um, uh, about about your project and about um, the work you're doing here to, to help folks kind of see all of this uh, Web3 crypto mumbo jumbo from a different perspective. So, so thank Definitely. you so much for that. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Lane Rettig. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe to it on Apple, Spotify, or any other one of your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to give it a five-star rating and write a review. The full interviews are also available on my YouTube channel, The Somi Ariane Show.